want to let you know right up front what our aim is with this series is to walk you through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we take that journey together, we're going to be able to answer, hopefully, some really pivotal questions. Questions like, how do we, how do we be the church, right? This thing we talk about every week. How do we be the church in a society that doesn't exactly share our same values? Right? Or how do we share the love of Jesus in the midst of a, of a broken world? Or how do we follow the commands of Jesus when they run counter to the standard that's been set by society? These are questions that each of us, as, as followers of Jesus, we have to wrestle with daily. And so we wanted to have an intentional conversation together as a family. Because what we actually see in the book of 1 Corinthians is that the, the, the challenging and relevant topics of their day are the same exact challenging and relevant topics that we still face today. I'm talking about topics like sex, marriage, gender, diversity. 2,000 years and we're still facing the same challenges. And so our hope is and our prayer is to help you see these issues through the lens of the gospel. Because we don't want you to be influenced by culture. We want you to be the one that's influencing culture. We want you to come back to the truths that are found in the gospel so that you're not influenced by the culture that exists around you. Because here's the simple reality, family. As followers of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. But you live in the midst of a fallen world. Which means that gives you a choice. You can either influence culture or you can allow culture to influence you. Well, our hope and our prayer is that you would gain both the knowledge and the confidence to carry kingdom culture out into the world. So that's a little bit of a, of a glimpse of where we're headed with this series. But the reality is that in order for us to be uh, carriers of kingdom culture out there, we must first be united in our mission here. We must first be united in our mission here. And that's why Paul is actually going to address this area first. We've got, I think, 15 chapters in Corinthians, but in the very first chapter, the very first thing Paul addresses is the unity of the church. So the topic we're going to talk about today, we're going to take a little bit different angle. We're going to talk about the division in the church, because that's the reality that Paul is addressing here. The ideal was unity, but the fact is that there was division. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's just kind of the overarching piece. You can put this at the top of your notes. It's this, division in the church threatens the mission of the church. Division in the church threatens the mission of the church. And to help illustrate this a little bit, I'm going to bring back what's probably a familiar illustration to some of you. If you've been through our uh, fully engaged, our partnership process, or if you've even just heard enough of my messages, you've probably heard me reference this idea that the church can either look like a cruise ship or like an aircraft carrier. You guys familiar with this illustration? I want to take it just a step closer, a step, uh, step deeper here to talk about the types of gatherings that happen on each of these types of ships. Let's start with the one that a lot of us are probably familiar with, which is the cruise ship. Show of hands, how many of you have been on a cruise before? Okay, a good amount of you. Okay, when you get on a cruise ship, there's, this, there's something you have to do every time, right when you get on. Like right after you board, you're excited for your vacation, and what do you have to do? You have to go to this thing called a mustard drill. I had to look up what that was. I didn't really care what it was called. But this mustard drill, if you've been on a cruise, you know right when you get on, you got to go with your whole family, your whole traveling party. You got to go sit with a couple hundred strangers to go through this mandatory safety training. Right? And as if it wasn't already going to be bad enough, they make you wear your life preserver so you're all sitting there like this. 
It's like the worst possible way to start a vacation, right? If you've been on a cruise, you already know this because you're sitting there, you're ready, you've got your whole agenda built out, all these things you want to do, and yet you've got to sit with a bunch of strangers and go through this mandatory training. All you're thinking about is, man, I can't wait for this to be over so I can go do the things that I want to do. Now let's compare that to the, the mission briefing that happens on an aircraft carrier. This is where the soldiers come together to, to understand what the plan is for that day. They might learn about the threats that they're going to face. This is where they all come to get on the same page with each other. Now, I've never been a part of one of these, but I, I, would, I would imagine that the attention level, right, that the level of engagement is quite a bit different than it is on that mustard drill on the cruise ship. See, because on the aircraft carrier, each one of those soldiers, they understand the purpose of the mission. More importantly, they understand the stakes if they're not united in that mission. For them, it might even be life and death. So instead of, of bringing their own agendas, instead of focusing on their own desires, they set them aside for the sake of the mission. Now I'm hoping you've already seen which one we should be as the church. But let me ask you a question. What happens when somebody shows up to the mission briefing on the aircraft carrier with the cruise ship mentality? What happens when somebody shows up, when everybody else is united and they only come with their own agenda, their own interests, their own things that they want to do? Well, it puts the whole mission at risk, doesn't it? Family, that's the same threat that we face when we're not united as a church, when we come with our own agenda, when we're not on the same page, when we're divided as a team, we put the whole mission of the church at risk. That's why we're kicking off this series this way. That's why Paul starts off his letter this way. Because the division in the church puts the whole mission of God at risk. So we're going to start by talking about how easy it is for us, both as followers of Jesus and as God's people collectively, to be divided. Because we want to eventually ditch that division and embrace this biblical sense of unity. We all on the same page with where we're headed today? All right, good. Let's come before God at the word of prayer. Father, we just want to start off this time, Lord, by looking to you. Lord, I ask that you would just help us to set aside our agenda, to set aside our, our personal preferences. Lord, even just to set aside anything we might have carried in here this morning so that we might hear directly from you. Would you convict us? Would you compel us, Father, to carry kingdom culture out into the world? It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you all have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can go ahead and get those out now. As you do, though, I want to just give you a little bit of context as to this letter. So we're going to be in this for about nine weeks, and so hopefully this will help you give an understanding of, of where we're headed. Anytime we open up one of Paul's letters, we have to understand that it is first and foremost a letter. So we are seeing one side of what's essentially a, a two-way conversation. I don't know if you've ever had uh, this happen to you where you're maybe in a car with a friend or, or, or somebody and they pick up the phone and you only hear one side of the conversation. Probably happens less now because we've got to be on Bluetooth, but you get what I'm saying. When you only hear one side of the conversation, you can kind of gather quite a bit, but it helps a whole lot when you know who's on the other end of the line. If I'm in the car with my buddy and he's talking to his wife, it's going to give me a lot more context to the conversation than if he's talking with his boss. You guys get the picture? What we need to understand here is who Paul is talking to. And he's talking to, or writing to rather, the people of God in a city called Corinth. Now Corinth is in Greece, uh, but 
without giving you the full context of this, this city, the best way I've heard it compared is that Corinth as a city looks a lot like California does as a state. So I've got to be honest, I know I'm talking about unity in the church, and I just brought up the most divisive topic in the state of Texas, but bear with me here because it's actually a pretty good comparison. See, Corinth, it was a, it was a major economic center in the Roman Empire, right? It was on this little, this little isthmus you see right there between the kind of mainland Greece and between the peninsula. And so anything going from one side of Greece or one side of the Roman Empire to the other, it was probably going to flow through Corinth. Not unlike California, right? Anything from the Pacific that's coming into the States or going across is probably going to pass through California. So it was a main thoroughfare for commerce. But because of that, it was also a main thoroughfare for culture. Right? There was a lot of money in Corinth. There was a lot of, a lot of young people, a lot, of, a lot of influence, a lot of success, a lot of diversity. It was really trendy. Again, there's a lot of comparisons between Corinth and California. But what all of these things contribute to, all the money, all the, the success, all of the, all of the trendiness, well, it came to a loosening of morals. There was sexual experimentation. There was all kinds of things where lines were being blurred amongst this society. In fact, Corinthians were so infamous for their loose morals that if there was like a stage play going on and somebody had to play the role of a Corinthian, they would always play them as a drunkard. That's the kind of stigma that this city carried. So that's a little bit about Corinth, this place that Paul is writing to, these people that Paul is writing to. But what does this have to do with Paul? Well, hopefully you know that Paul visited Corinth. That's one of the reasons why he's writing to them. We're not going to learn a whole lot about that journey, but if you want to take a look for yourself, uh, you can look at Acts chapter 18 this week. Uh, it gives you a little bit of glimpse into what Paul's missionary journey looked like there. But what Paul did is he visited this city much like he visited other cities. He shared the gospel, he planted churches, he raised up leaders, and then he was on to the next city. That's what Paul always did. That was his role as an apostle. And I want to point out just briefly that Paul always did this in cities. Paul didn't really concern himself with the suburbs. Like we love our friends from, from Taylor and, and from out, a little bit further out. But Paul went to the city because that's where education happened. That's where art happened. That's where influence happened. Paul would go to the cities. He'd be there. He'd raise up those leaders. And then he'd be on to the next one. And so Paul does that for about a year and a half in Corinth raises up new leaders, plants churches, sees the gospel takes root, and then at some point, Paul's called somewhere else. But while Paul's on his missionary journey, he receives letters saying, hey, uh, we've got a couple of issues. There's a couple of things that you didn't address, right? Paul had planted the church in the city, but the city had gotten into the church. That thing we talked about, right, either influencing culture or culture influencing the church, well, the culture was influencing the church quite a bit. And so they write to Paul, and 1 Corinthians then is Paul's response back to them, hey, here's how to deal with these issues. Here's how to carry kingdom culture out into the world. That's a little bit of background for what we're going to dive into today. Again, if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now, Paul spends the first nine verses building the foundation of the church on Christ, and then in verse 10 he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but Paul actually uses unifying language five times in that one verse. You can look back in 
check me on that if you want to, but there's five different times he uses unifying language. And family, one good practice when you're reading scripture is if something is repeated even once, and you should pay attention. If it's repeated five times, that's basically Paul beating you over the head with this, saying like, hey, you need to get this. Paul is saying, hey, unity is the standard. Unity is the standard. If you're taking notes, that's the first point this morning. But by placing this first, Paul is saying unity must be the priority for the church. He's actually going to emphasize that in three different ways. Let's look at those here real briefly. First, he says to be in agreement. What the actual Greek says is something more like that they all say the same thing. It's kind of a Greek phrase that was used in those days. I use a different one, like with our ministry leaders and our staff. I say that, hey, we all need to be singing from the same song sheet. I don't know if that's maybe an older phrase. I don't even know where I got it from. But it gives this idea that, hey, we may all like, have different voices. We may all sound a little different, but we're all singing the same words. We're hitting the same notes. Or at least in my case, we're, we're trying to, giving it our best effort, right? So Paul says that they must all agree and that they have no divisions among them. The Greek word here is actually the word schisma. Probably sounds familiar to you, right? It's where we get our English word schism from. And this word, it's meant to refer to something that is, is meant to be together, but it's been torn apart. So imagine for a moment if I were to walk out to your car out in the parking lot and just open up the hood and just start pulling all, all the wires and, and all the hoses. I wouldn't know what I was doing, but if I just pull it all, all apart, your car wouldn't be able to function the way it was intended to, right? Paul is saying this is what's happening in the church. Y'all are meant to be united as one, but, but you're being torn apart so that you can no longer function the way that you're supposed to. He says, have no divisions among you. Then he goes back, the third command is, is more in the positive light. He says, be united in mind and in judgment. And again, there's another kind of word picture that's painted here. And it's this idea of, of mending together a, a, a broken net. So back in those days, there was fishermen, right? And their nets would break. And so they'd have to retie all those little ties back together. Paul's trying to paint this idea that we are supposed to be intertwined both in, in, in opinion and in thought. In our thought and in our purpose. And just so we're clear, family, it's not, it's not my purpose. It's not Pastor Josiah's purpose. It's not his purpose or her purpose. Right? It's the purposes that God has set before us. The reality is, man, in our society, this one could be so challenging for us. Because we are hardwired to get other people to, to align with our thoughts and our opinions. I mean, just turn on the news. That's basically all they're doing. It's trying to get you to align with their thoughts and their opinions. But we need to be reminded that, family, we're not the center of the universe. Let me say that again in case you didn't hear it. You are not the center of the universe. Right? God is. It's not your way or the highway. There is a much, 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 much better way. And that was displayed for us by Jesus. So when you get this idea of being united in mind and in judgment, we need to realize that Jesus is the one who set the standard for what this looks like. That's why Paul tells us in Philippians 2, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He humbled himself in obedience, even to the point of death on a cross. So Paul sets unity as the standard. He describes it as us being on the, on the same page, functioning as one cohesive unit, intertwined in thought and in purpose. So let me ask you, family, when you look around at the local church, is this what you see? My guess is probably not. My guess is probably not. 
And I think there's a number of reasons why this is, some of which we're going to get into in later weeks. But what I felt the Lord just continuing to put on my, on my heart and on my mind this week is that there's really, there's one core reason I think we all need to be aware of that some of us might be a bit blinded to. And that's the, the, the core reason that we're not united because we have a different definition of what unity is. Let me explain what I mean. This word unity, it's been taken and it's been redefined by society. The word unity, this biblical definition of unity, it's been taken and it's been redefined by society. And so the result is confusion amongst churches and division over what our actual goal is. We see this actually all over the place in our culture, right? Where the, the virtues and the values that are communicated by scripture, they are taken and they are redefined by society. Words like unity, equality, diversity, they've been redefined to push certain agendas, so what I wanted to do this morning is actually just to take a minute, just to step aside from the, from the conversation that, that Paul's having so that we can actually all get on the same page with what biblical unity actually is. Let me just dispel a couple of, of misconceptions, some things that we've been led to believe by society that unity is, but in fact is not. First, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Nowhere in scripture are we ever commanded to agree on every little thing. That is not the New Testament vision of the church. The New Testament vision of the church is one where Jesus is so big, so important, so central that we don't get divided and get in arguments over the, the lesser things. What matters is that we agree on the essentials, right? On the person and the work of Christ, on the inerrancy of scripture, on the triune God. It's not that we have to all like, you know, have the same worship style, that we all have to dress the same or even vote the same because unity isn't uniformity. I've always loved the way that St. Augustine so simply put it. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. So that's number one. Unity is not uniformity. Second, unity is not relativism. Hate to break it to you, family, but not everybody can be right about everything. That's just ridiculous, right? There's also no such thing as your truth. There's only one truth, the truth, and it's God's truth. We on the same page with that one? Can we move on? Okay. Last one. Unity is not passivity. Unity is not passivity. Family, this one's important. Because I believe some believers think the only way we can be unified with the world around us is by refusing to take a clear stand on anything. But throughout Paul's letter, he's going to tell the Corinthian church, hey, there are some things that we must agree on or else we will lose our identity as God's people. We got to agree on these things or we will lose our identity as God's people. And the reality is, family, some of these beliefs, which are going to cover throughout this series, they're not just in question in our society. They are straight up under attack. They're under attack. Again, these topics like sex and marriage and gender. And what happens is if we start to believe in, in society's definition of unity, if we start to cave into that pressure, we will acquiesce to their standard rather than standing on God's standard. We'll feel that pressure to, to sort of passively just adopt the culture of the world rather than standing firm on our convictions because we're chasing after a unity that's not even biblical unity at all. Are y'all following with me this morning? We have to come back to an understanding of what true biblical unity actually is. It's not uniformity. It's not relativism. And it's certainly not passivity. Just think back to that example of the aircraft carrier. 
for them all to be on the same mission, on the same mission, for them all to accomplish their mission. Are they all doing the same thing? No, of course not. Each of them has been given a task. Are they operating in, in relativism? No, they're given absolutes. And you better believe they are assertive in what they've been called to do. Family, the same must be true for us. We must understand the role that we have been given to carry kingdom culture out into the world so that we can proactively pursue peace and unity, not as it's defined by culture, but as it's defined through the life of Christ. All right, now that we're all on the same page with this biblical definition of unity, we could talk about the things that threaten that unity. And here's where we're kind of in luck because the First Corinthian church they were struggling with the same things, the same sort of divisions that we struggle with here today. And thankfully, Paul's guidance for them is just as good for us now as it was for them then. So let's look back to our passage. We're going to begin in verse 11 where Paul addresses the first source of that division. He says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, for I follow Christ. So right out the gate, we see that while unity may be the standard, that division is the problem. Division is clearly the problem. And the first example we actually get of this from the Corinthian church, it's not over the message that's being delivered. It's actually over the messenger who's delivering it. What was happening is that the people were, were dividing over their personal preferences for which pastor, which preacher they preferred. There were some who claimed to, to follow Paul. And this one makes sense, right? That Paul was the one who probably planted their church. He may have even been the one that led them to Christ. It would make sense. They might say, I follow Paul. Well, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but it can be a bad thing when it is used as a tool for divisiveness or as a way to elevate yourself over, over someone else. But there were some who didn't care as much for Paul. Maybe they said, hey, he's, he left us. He's, you know, he's dead to us or whatever. And they said, hey, I follow Apollos. If you know Apollos, you would know that hey, it probably makes sense that they would have such an, an affinity for this guy. Because Apollos, he was the, really the frontline guy in the Corinthian church. After Paul had left, Apollos was raised up, and this guy had, he had that charisma. He was such a great public speaker. He had that it factor. And especially in that day and age where oral communication was like the premier art form, and this guy had it in spades. So people loved to listen to him. Honestly, he probably was like the first celebrity preacher in the early Christian church. You would think that it would maybe end there, the divisions, but, but Paul actually goes on to mention two other kind of groups. He says, there's some that say, I follow Cephas. Now that's Peter, Jesus' disciple. I find this one a little bit interesting because Peter never went to Corinth, but I'm guessing that the people said, hey, I follow Peter because he was like the real OG, right? He was, he was the one that walked with Jesus. And he wasn't some like lofty Pharisee like Paul or some great preacher like Apollos. He was just, he was like one of us, that relatable dude, that fisherman. So they said, I follow Peter. But my favorite of these divided groups is those that said, I follow Christ. Now, when you read that, you can read it one of two ways. You can read it as it's saying, you know, hey, I follow Jesus. I'm not going to get caught up in this, in this pettiness. Or the way I read it, is the kind of holier-than-thou translation, right? Where you're saying, like, you guys may follow people, but I, I follow Christ. <laughs> That's kind of the feel that you get from it, right? 
If you read it that way, the only thing this statement really shows you is that those who are reciting it are those who are refusing to submit to pastoral authority in their lives. That's a whole different ballgame. It's kind of like the people who, who choose nowadays, even though they're physically able, to only do church online. I'm just going to watch that pastor that's, that's a thousand miles away because he talks the way that I like my pastor to talk. Maybe he doesn't address the hard things like this. Or maybe, hey, I don't, I don't want to be a part of a church and get uncomfortable with, with other people and deal with that drama. Or maybe I don't want to be held accountable by my pastor and by, by my life group, so I'm just going to choose to stay home and watch church in my underwear. Or my personal favorite is those who claim to love Jesus but then don't go to church. Y'all have heard this before, right? You ask somebody, you know, they know Jesus or whatever. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I, I just don't go to church because it's just full of hypocrites. Says the person who claims to love Jesus and is blatantly disobeying his command to be a part of the church. I don't know about y'all. It sounds to me like they fit right in. They should come join us on Sundays at 1030, right? <laughs> I know I might be getting a little salty over this, but I just can't stand to see God's church divided over just personal preferences. That's ultimately all this is. Look at the one word that's true in all those things. It says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. It's I, 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 I. I want, I need, I feel, I think. No wonder there was so much division in the church. Right? They couldn't even get past the preacher before they started dividing lines. Right? We're no different today, family. It's easy for us to judge Easy for us to judge, but the reality is we're quick to draw dividing lines between worship styles and preaching styles. You know, organs or guitars, expository preaching or topical preaching, ripped jeans, no ripped jeans, fog machines, no fog machines. Listen, I'm not saying that styles don't matter or that having a preference is a sinful thing. What I'm saying is that dividing over those preferences, it undermines the message of the gospel and it weakens our witness to the world. We need to realize this. Consider this for a moment. There are an estimated 45,000 Christian denominations worldwide. 45,000. Y'all, there used to be two. <laughs> Seriously. Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox. 45,000. And I'm not condemning denominations. Like I said, there is, there is liberty to be different. But the reality is that most of these denominations were, they were formed out of divisions over preferences, over comfort. Our differences are not meant to divide. Our differences are meant to give us an opportunity to highlight the message of the gospel and to strengthen our witness of the world through our unity. So the question is then how do we achieve, how do we pursue this sort of unity? And this is where Paul points us to the cross of Christ. He says the cross of Christ is the source of our unity. It's the third point for you note-takers. Let's look back to 1 Corinthians. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. And I love this. He realizes, oh yeah, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And here's the important one. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, clearly, I'm not the only one that's getting a little salty here, right? Because Paul, he asks these sarcastic questions. And he does so to, to, to shine a light on how ridiculous their divisions are. Right? He says, is Christ divided? Of course not. You can't divide up Jesus and just give, you know, this little denomination, this little group, him, piece of him, and you get a piece of him, and you get a piece of him. Well, if Christ's body can't be divided, then neither should his church be, right? So what's the solution? The solution is to look to the source of the cross of Christ as our source of unity. See, family, we all know that the cross of Christ, it represents the, the price that was paid for the forgiveness of our sins. But what it also was is the greatest unifying event in human history. In Jesus' atoning sacrifice, he united us both with God and with each other. He tore the veil that was standing between us and God, and he broke down the barriers of hostility that stood between us and one another. So what the late Billy Graham was referring to when he said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's not that we're all the same. It's not that we're all uniform or share the same preferences, but that none of these can divide what the cross of Christ meant to unite. None of these can, none of them should, none of them will divide what the cross of Christ meant to unite. And because of the cross of Christ family, unity should not just be seen as a possibility. And it should be our priority. Unity should be our priority. Let me give you one simple, emphatic reason why. It's because it was Jesus' priority. Unity was Jesus' priority, plain and simple. And do you want to know how I know that? Do you want to know how I know that? Unity was Jesus' priority. We know that because in those moments of deep pressure, priorities are revealed. In moments of pressure, priorities are revealed. Think about this for a second. Those of you who are parents, who maybe have a, have a young child, when you find yourself in a maybe dangerous situation, right? Pressure starts to, to rise, and what do you do? Man, you stand in front of your kid. You put him back here, right? In moments of pressure, priorities are revealed. Or let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say your house catches on fire. I want you to think in your mind right now, what, what would you run in and save? I don't know what that answer is for. You don't have to share it right now. But the reality is the pressure of that moment would reveal your priorities, right? Well, the same is true for Jesus. See, because on the night that he was betrayed, just before he was arrested, he goes to the Father in prayer. And what does he pray for? What does he ask God for? It's unity. That was his priority. Listen to his words from John chapter 17. After he prays for his disciples, he says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be what? One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And the pressure of the moment revealed Jesus' priority. And it's unity. That we would be perfectly one. And then in that same breath, he talks to the purpose of our unity. He says, so that the world will know that you sent me. See, family, because the cross of Christ is the source of our unity, what that means is that our unity then becomes our greatest testimony 
to the power of the cross. Our unity becomes the most effective means by which we can witness to the world around us. That's why Paul is so passionate. Why he's so passionate about unity, about confronting division, because he knows how important unity is to the mission. And the reality is, family, we need this now more than ever. I'm not sure if you've looked around yourself when you're out in the world, if you've taken a look at social media, but our society is more fractured than I've ever seen it. I mean, we are dividing over every single little thing. It's ridiculous. And the challenge is so many of those divisions, they are seeping through the doors into the church. Okay, we've got to curb the influence that the, 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 the culture of the world is having on us. And we've got to turn that tide and start taking kingdom culture out into the world. So I just want to spend the rest of our time here together this morning talking about how we actually do that. All right, let's take unity from being this pie-in-the-sky idea to being an actual reality we can pursue and embrace this morning. In order to do that, I want to just look back at just one phrase that Paul mentions here in verse 17. Look back to the first half of verse 17. Paul simply says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is Paul's mission. It's Paul's mission, and it should be our mission. Not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, I want you to check this out. When you look at the original Greek here, this phrase, to preach the gospel, it actually comes from just one word. It's just one word. And I want you to notice what's implied by this. See, because for most of us, we grew up understanding that the gospel is a noun. This isn't going to be a grammar lesson, I promise, but follow me here. We grew up understanding that the gospel is simply a noun, that it is a verse to recite. That the gospel is a, 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 an appeal to memorize. That it's Matthew or Mark or that it's Luke or that it's John. But the reality we need to face, family, and embrace is that the gospel is a verb. The gospel is a verb. We don't just preach it, we live it. Yeah, we just don't, pro don't just proclaim the good news, we, we demonstrate it everywhere we go. So when we extend forgiveness, we are gospeling. When we go out of our way to help someone in need, we are gospeling. When we bridge a gap that exists in a relationship with a brother or sister, we're gospeling. Anytime we put somebody else before ourselves for the sake of unity, we are gospeling. Family, this is our shared mission to make gospel a verb and to share the good news of Jesus through both proclamation and demonstration. So encouragement number one for you this morning is to live the gospel. Encouragement number two is to make it clear. Make it clear. See, helping others is, it's a really good thing. Pursuing peace is even better, but the reality we need to face, family, is that those things can be done in a self-help group. Those things can be done in a, in a mom's club. We are called to be ministers of the gospel, which means this. Our mission isn't accomplished when unity is achieved. Our mission is accomplished when Jesus is received. Do you all see the difference there? We like to stop once unity is achieved. This feels good. We can't stop until Jesus is received. Remember, that's the purpose of the unity. That's why Jesus prayed, so that the world will know that you sent me. So as ministers of the gospel, our assignment is not just to bring peace, but to be one sinner telling another sinner how to find their Savior. Unity is the priority, yes, but we can't stop there because salvation is the solution. That's the purpose of our unity. 
And that leads to the third practical takeaway for you this morning. Talked about living the gospel. Talked about making it clear. And the third is to claim responsibility. To claim responsibility. This one's, this one's the hard one. Because what we all must come to terms with is that we have been the source of division at some point. That we have threatened the unity of the church. That we have at times been guilty of weakening our witness to the world. Well, family, if we want to be intentional, if we want to be, be effective in carrying kingdom culture out, we must first claim responsibility for the culture that we've allowed in. So I want to just ask you just to take a moment, just to humble yourself. Ask, ask the Lord to examine your heart. Are there areas in which you maybe have withheld forgiveness from somebody? Maybe even somebody within this church body. Maybe you are here this morning and you're still holding a grudge. Maybe you've been a part of some, some gossip, some division. Maybe you've even just allowed it to sort of exist around you and haven't spoken up. Or maybe you've allowed your own personal preferences to keep you from the people that God has called you to. Whatever it might be, I want to just ask you, would you reflect on that just for a moment? I don't think we could truly carry kingdom culture out until we realize what we have let in. Whatever it might be, would you reflect on that for a moment? Would you just consider humbly that perhaps you have been the one to show up to the mission briefing on the aircraft carrier with the cruise ship mentality? If that's you this morning, and I want you to know there is grace for you. We are not here to, to judge you. We are your family, and we mean that. We're not here to cast you out. We simply want to point you back to the cross of Christ. We simply want to point you back to his cross and allow the, the Holy Spirit to minister and to do the work of uniting us once again. Because if that's truly your desire, if unity is truly your desire, family, nothing will stand in your way. Nothing will. When our priorities align with God's priority, nothing can get in the way. I'm going to prove that to you by sharing with you a story. As I do that, I want to invite the, invite the band back up. This story, it actually comes uh, from the country of Germany, just from the aftermath of, of World War II. Now, I know we're all familiar with the atrocities that took place during that time, but what you may not know is that one of Hitler's strategies before and early on in the war was to unite the church together. And of course, he had evil intention, right? He wanted to unite the churches so that he could, could bring influence and control over the people. Hitler may have been evil, but he knew the power of a united church. Well, the strategy had actually caused a lot of division amongst uh, Christian denominations because there were some who decided to kind of go with Hitler's plan and some who didn't. And as I was reading the story about this, there's a historian that told of this denomination called the Brethren Assembly. And this denomination was basically split in half because half of the leaders and pastors, they decided to go along with Hitler's strategy. And those that went along with his strategy, they had a pretty easy time during the war. You can imagine those who decided to resist and to refuse going along with Hitler's plan. Every single one of them, they either had a family member or they themselves died in a concentration camp. So when the war was over, you can imagine the, the bitterness that existed between two sides of this same denomination. These men who before probably saw each other as close as brothers, now had this divide between them. 
the pain of persecution, the weight of shame, that gap was wide. But not long after the war, pastors from each side, they decided to come together. And they met together at a, at a retreat for several days. They didn't bring in some guru to, to, to tell them how to, how to find unity. They didn't have some crazy agenda. No, all they did was they spent time alone in prayer, reflecting on the cross of Christ. And as this historian tells the story, he says that he asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? And the person who was there says, we were just one. We were just one. Because they came to the cross of Christ and realized there's no room for hatred or division. In light of the love that's been displayed on the cross, there's no room for us to hate one another. Everything is level at the foot of the cross. And so their love for one another, their unity then amidst the deepest pain, it ended up becoming the greatest witness to the world around them. Family, in the end, even the, the greatest atrocities you could ever imagine could not divide what the cross of Christ meant to unite. And listen, I know there still exists division among us. I was telling our prayer team earlier, we are so blessed to be such a diverse body and to still have such unity amongst us. But we can't just stop there. Paul says in, in the book of Ephesians that we must be eager to maintain a spirit of unity. It means we must proactively pursue these things. So I want to ask you, church, where can you play a part? How is God calling you to pursue unity amongst your brothers and your sisters? I think for some of you that are new, that may just be like talking to people, reaching out, sharing a meal, getting to know somebody. Those of you who've been around a little bit longer, hey, maybe some of those relationships need mending. Let's not come in here every Sunday and just pretend that everything's okay. Here at Awaken, we like to say that we go deep and we get real. I think for some of us, that's still very much aspirational. That's okay. We're here to walk with you in that. So I actually want to ask you guys, if you would, just stand to your feet. I want to give you a couple of different ways you can respond to this message here this morning. Maybe for some of you, you've just realized, man, there are ways that you have contributed to division, whether in the church, whether in your family, in your own life, and you need to receive prayer. I want to invite you just to head to the back. Some of our pastors, our prayer team, will be back there to, to pray over you. Some of you, though, you may actually need to go and seek forgiveness. Maybe it's from somebody right in here. Man, go during worship. Grab that person. Pull them aside. Confess your heart to them. Maybe that person isn't here. Maybe you need to actually leave the building. Get on your phone. Hey, you've got permission and grace to do just that. But family, I want you to know this. The cross of Christ is the source of our unity. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you just to, just to picture the cross in your mind. The cross of Christ tells us that we have all fallen short. We have all contributed to division. But it also tells us that there is unity because of what Christ has done for us. Friends, there is forgiveness, there is grace for you here this morning. 
if you would humble yourself to confess of your sins and to seek unity here today. Jesus, we don't deserve you. We don't deserve your grace. But we thank you for bridging that gap. Would you help us? Would you give us the confidence? Would you give us the, the mercy? Would you give us the courage to take the steps that we need to humble ourselves out of obedience to pursue unity with our brothers and our sisters here today? We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.